from Crypto Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to another edition of Hollywood Unscripted. I'm your host, Scott Talal of the Malibu Film Society. And today we're going to, I'm sure you're sick of hearing this, boldly go where no podcast has gone before. <laughs> it never gets old. With Ron Moore, the producer and writer of shows from Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, all the way forward to the current For All Mankind on Apple TV+. Plus. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate you coming in. I've been a huge fan forever. And I have a question for you. Were you a fanboy before you started doing all this? Oh, yeah. My roots are as a fan. You know, I grew up as a Star Trek fan in the 70s. That was my first real love. And, you know, I discovered that in the first run syndication of somewhere around 1974. I was like in third or fourth grade and found Star Trek. And it, you know, it just literally changed my life. I became obsessed with the show. I lived in a small town in central California. So I didn't really have access to any of the Star Trek conventions or anything like that weren't happening around me. I only even heard about them because I would pick up on Starlog magazine every once in a while at the drugstore and be like, oh my God, there's these conventions going on in Chicago and New York and San Francisco, and isn't that amazing? And slowly became aware that there was something called fandom, and that there was a culture of people who loved the show like I did, which I had no idea. I was sort of the only one in my peer group that loved the show the way I did. And so the whole notion that there were people out there writing fanzines and making their own costumes and props and getting together and talking about it was an amazing concept. So when I got to college, the first opportunity I had to go to a convention was in Stony Brook, New York, and I made an effort to go do that and spent two days just walking around being amazed by it all. So yeah, by the time I got to Star Trek The Next Generation, I came from an understanding of what it is to be a fan of the material, and I still retain sort of an empathy for what it is to be on the other side of that curtain and to want to know desperately what's going on behind the scenes, and that's why I like to talk about the process and what I do, and I also sort of understand the psychology of people that get really, really wrapped up in the show, because <laughs> mm -hmm. I was one of those people. So you were at Cornell University, but you decided not to finish and instead you came out to Hollywood. Talk to us about what that was all about. Well, I sort of decided not to finish and that I stopped going to class and then they invited me not to continue <laughs> being at the university. So then I decided I should probably go somewhere else. Came to California with a friend of mine who had graduated the year before and was in LA trying to be a writer. Mm -hmm. And he and I had been friends. We were in a literary society at Cornell and he came back for a visit and he said, what are you doing with your life now that you've been you know, kicked out? And I said, I really don't know. And he said, well, why don't you come back to California with me and be a writer? And I said, okay. And I just cashed out my bank account and bought a one-way ticket to LA and started sleeping on his floor in Studio City and literally just started life over. You know, okay, now I'm going to be a writer. And I hadn't been studying writing at Cornell. I was there on a Navy scholarship and I was studying government because I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And over time, I had discovered that I didn't want to be a lawyer. I wanted to be Perry Mason, that there was a fundamental difference between the two. And so my senior year is when it all just kind of collapsed on me and I had to seek something else and came to LA and just started over. Got a job as a messenger, as an animal hospital receptionist. Did various odd jobs for like two, three years until I got my first break at Star Trek. As I understand it, you were taking a tour of the sets on Next Generation and you you just happened to bring a spec script. <laughs> yeah, I was dating a girl because every story starts like I was dating a girl. And I was dating a girl who found out that I was a Star Trek fan because I had Captain Kirk posters in my apartment. And she said, oh, I have a connection to Next Generation. It turned out she had worked on the pilot.
pilot in the casting department, and she still knew people over there. And this was like around the second season. And she said, oh, they have a weekly tour of the sets because there were so many people that wanted to see the Star Trek sets that they had finally said, okay, we got to organize this madness. Let's just do it once a week. And if you knew somebody, you could get on the tour. So she said, I could probably make a call and get you on a tour of the sets. And I was like, oh my God, that would be unbelievable. Please, please, please. She makes the call and she says, okay, I got you on the tour. It's in about six weeks. And I just decided for whatever reason at that point in my life, I said, this is my shot and I'm going to write a script and take it with me. And I wasn't that guy. I wasn't the guy that was writing scripts and knocking on people's doors and I wasn't the go-getter. I was starting and stopping a lot of scripts over and over again and very lazy and procrastinating. And somehow, I guess in retrospect, this was my first deadline. And in my brain, it was like, oh, I have to have a script ready by the time I go on that tour. And so I sat down and I wrote a script and I called it The Bonding. And I took it with me and I managed to convince the guy that was giving me the set tour into reading it. And he liked it and gave it to a woman that became my first agent. Agent submitted it to the show formally. It sat in the slush pile for about seven months. The beginning of the third season, Michael Piller came aboard to start running the writing staff. And he started going through the slush pile of unsolicited scripts, found mine, decided to buy it and produce it, and asked me to do a second one, do the second one. And then I got a call one day saying, I just fired one of our writers. I need a staff writer starting tomorrow. Can you be here tomorrow to work full time on the show? And that was it. I was there for the next 10 years and it was an amazing moment. My mind still reels about how how that all happened and why and how is that possible? And it's it's a great story. And I was very, very lucky. And it seems like an incredible ride because that show ended. You keep getting bumped up the production food chain where you become a producer on the show and then supervising producer, etc. And then you get to do some of the features. Yeah, I did two of the features. Co-wrote them with Brandon Braga, Star Trek Generations and Star Trek First Contact. And yeah, I worked on Next Gen for five years and I did Deep Space Nine for five years. It was, it's how my career began. It was a full decade of total immersion in Star Trek, which was unbelievable because it was such a part of my childhood. And I wasn't that far removed from my childhood. I was in my 20s. And suddenly I could walk down and sit on the bridge of the Enterprise anytime I felt like it. You know, I could walk through the corridors and imagine that I was in space. And it was a an unbelievable sort of meeting of man and child and profession and love and just all kinds of things. Were you on the set for the shoot of your first script? I went down for a day. That's when I met Patrick Stewart for the first time. I was down there watching one of the scenes, and it was really like, wow, I can't believe this. And, you know, I'd gone through a rewrite, but it was close enough to what I had originally written that it was a, oh, yeah, I remember this scene. And at some point in the break of the shooting, they called Patrick over and said, oh, we just want to introduce you to Ron Moore here. He wrote this episode. And Patrick was very gracious, and he's like, oh, lovely, oh, marvelous. It's a pleasure to meet you. Oh, yes, we just love this script. Are you doing anything else for us? And I said, oh, yes, I'm actually working on a second one. It's called The Defector. It's about a Romulan defector. And I started giving him the holy... Oh, wonderful. Just remember one thing. The captain doesn't do nearly enough screwing and shooting on this show. And then he walked away. (laughs) (laughs) That was how I met Patrick Stewart. Yeah. You had graduated from Next Generation onto Deep Space Nine, and then you had started Voyager. But mm-hmm. I understand it wasn't the best of experiences. No, it wasn't a good experience. I was only there two, three months. I'm not even entirely sure how long. And it failed for a variety of reasons. I think primarily because I probably shouldn't have taken the job in the first place. Everyone else from Deep Space Nine left the franchise, and they had offered me to go over to Voyager. And... 
there was a tremendous yearning to sort of just not leave for me. It was like, I love Star Trek. I can keep doing it. I like my office. I had a great corner office on the fourth floor of the Hart building. And it was comfortable and the money was good. And why wouldn't I just keep going? But I didn't love Voyager. It wasn't because I was in love with that show and couldn't wait to write for it or that I was intrigued by it. Whereas, you know, when I went to Deep Space Nine, I was very intrigued by what it was. And I knew Ira Bear and respected him. And it was like, wow, this could be, it's very different than Next Gen and there's different challenges challenges and yeah, I'm going to try something really different. And Voyager, I kind of looked at it and went, well, it's got a lot of problems with it, but maybe I'll fix them. And I think there was a certain amount of hubris of I'm going to go in and I'm going to fix this show, even though they weren't handing me the show. I wasn't hired to be the showrunner. And, you know, I had my friendship with Brannon, which had gone on for many years and we had partnered as writers from time to time on various things. So there were a lot of sort of reasons I talked myself into doing it, got there and it just became a very unhappy experience. I think Brannon and I didn't, neither one of us handled it very well. And ultimately, I just said, I can't continue. I I just have to leave. And when it all kind of broke, it was very, very clear to me that I can't work here under these circumstances and that I probably shouldn't have done it in the first place. Which turned out to be fortuitous, your departure from that show, because it opened up a new door. It did. It's what they say. One door closes, another opens. And the career I've had since absolutely wouldn't have happened if I hadn't left at that moment in time. You know, I went from there to Roswell, spent a couple of years there, and that was kind of reintroducing me to television in a real way, because Star Trek existed in such a bubble unto itself that operated in ways that I can't come to find that no other television show operated like that. And suddenly dealing with a network, dealing with a place where ratings actually mattered, where you could get canceled, where the budgets were different, where the personalities were different, the stresses, all of that. So that Roswell period of time was invaluable to just kind of go, oh, wait a minute, you've been living in this fantasy world for the last decade, and the rest of TV ain't like that. Here's TV. And okay, had to deal with that. And then from there to go do the first real show running job, Carnival to Carnival to Battlestar, you know, it was a it was a journey. But the journey began by walking out the door at Star Trek. The thing I can never figure out is why more people didn't find Carnival because it was out of this world. It was really out there. You know, it was really an interesting show. In all honesty, those of us inside the show, you know, I was just there first season. I don't think we really knew what the show was. We were trying to figure out what the show was. You know, Dan Knopf, who created the pilot, was with us on staff. And even Dan was like, yeah, I'm not sure what this is all about or where we're really going. So you had a lot of reinvention and throwing things out and redoing it and rewriting and trying out different things over that first season. And there were many times I felt like quitting and like, I hate this because it was very political. There was a lot of stresses with the network and there was stresses inside the show, which was a new experience for me where the writing staff hated each other, where there was a genuine split down the middle of these people hate these people and it's getting ugly and I have to call them into my office one-on-one and try to mediate and be family therapist to this, which was something I'd never done. And there were times I just wanted to quit, but then I would look at the dailies and it was so beautiful and the performances were so strong and I had such a sense of this really has this enormous potential to be something special. And then the episodes were turning out really interesting and bizarre. But by the end of the first season, I was just done with it. It was too much. I didn't like it. I wasn't enjoying it. And meanwhile, the Battlestar miniseries had been produced and I was getting more interested with the idea maybe I could leave and hook up with that, which I had had to walk away from to be showrunner on Carnival. And I was more drawn towards the idea of that was really my baby and maybe I can go back and shepherd my baby after all, which is then what I did. You were born in 64. The first space shot, you were, what, four or five years old? The Armstrong, yeah, I watched it. Or the first moonshot. Moonshot, I watched it, yeah. 
Yeah. Was a kid. You, you do remember I that? I do. I remember very clearly. We were living in San Clemente, California. My father had just gotten back from Vietnam, and they gathered me and my brother, who was less than a year old, mm-hmm. into the living room to watch it on black and white TV, and I didn't really know what it was. And then they were saying, this is a man on the moon. It's a man on the moon. My brother literally took his first steps that night, which became family legend, and it was like, oh my God, Mikey's Mike's walking. <laughs> Neil's walking. It was just this really funny, weird thing. But it changed my life profoundly in that... I was fascinated with the idea that those images were men and that they were on the moon. And I remember looking up at the moon in the sky after that and going, why can't I see them? Asking my mother, where are they? Why can't I see them? Can I see them through the binoculars? Because dad had this big pair of binoculars. And she tried to explain, no, it's too far away. But the image stuck in my head. And then as the Apollo missions moved forward, if they were on TV, I was watching them. Mm-hmm. And I would watch any of the missions I could and became fascinated with the ships and the models. And, you know, my parents would buy a little magazine. There were all kinds of magazines and newspaper supplements that were around the house. And so there was always something to look at with space stuff on it. And then I wanted to see more of it. So that led me to Lost in Space, which led me to Star Trek. Because it was really a straight line of I started becoming fascinated and obsessed with science fiction because of the space program. Those shows were already off the air, though, at this time. So you came into them when they were in syndication. Yeah, I would come home after school and there was an independent channel in the valley, in Central Valley, California, Channel 26, that ran all those shows and strips syndication five days a week. So, you know, you get home at 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon, I Dream a Genie, Bewitched, Star Trek, Mission Impossible, Adam 12, on and on and on. So all those shows of the 60s were just being run five days a week. TV was my window in the world. I loved television. It was the window outside of Chowchilla. I guess you watched the original Battlestar Galactica then when the first run of the series came out. I did, which came out in 78. And I remember I read TV Guide obsessively and we subscribed to it. The beginning of fall, season, they'd have the season preview issues that would come out, and Battlestar was on the cover of it. And I was like, oh my god, there's going to be a science fiction show on television, obviously, like Star Wars, because everyone was trying to do their own Star Wars, and this was going to be their version. So I was there night one, and you know, I read the novel. I might have read the novelization <laughs> before the Battlestar Galactic actually came on. I have this weird memory of reading the book and then watching the show and looking for the scenes that were missing kind of a thing. But yeah, I watched every episode in its first run. So let's jump forward then 25, 30 years, and you're working on the miniseries, mm-hmm. and you're re-envisioning it. Talk to us about that process. Well, you know, it started with David Icke, who became my producing partner on the show, calling me and saying, I've got a deal at Universal, and they're looking for someone to come in with a take on Battlestar Galactica, who was part of the Universal Library. There have been various attempts to reboot it over the years, but it failed. And when I got that call from David, it was around, I want to say January, February 2002. So just a few months after the 9-11 attacks. And I went out and found the Battlestar pilot, which was like a two-hour movie, and you could rent it on VA. HS, ask your parents, and rented it over a weekend, watched it to kind of refresh my memory of what it was because I hadn't seen it in like 20 years. And I was struck in that very first viewing about just the resonance of the time. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm watching an apocalyptic attack that wipes out virtually all of humanity out of the blue, and then the survivors run away into the night and are chased by their enemies. And watching this after 9-11, it's just sort of like, wow, you look at it totally differently than you did in 1978. And I realized kind of quickly that if you did that show, if you rebooted that show, 
in that moment, it was an enormous opportunity. You could do something that was about the times we were living in that was socially relevant. You could really do a challenging science fiction show that wasn't really just popcorn and silliness. And you could really go back to sort of the basics of why do we do science fiction and how do we look at society through that prism. And so I was kind of in after that first weekend. Well, that first episode, it has the full exposition, but the storyline with Trisha Helfer playing number six, one of the 12 models of silence, and Dr. Gaius, mm-hmm. and the scenes of, you know, they begin with passionate sex, and during this time, her spine turns red. Yeah, her spine There's glows. something you haven't seen before. Yeah. Who came up with that? Oh, that was David. David came up with the spine glowing thing. He was like, yeah. has to be, we have to do something cool and sexy and weird and science fiction and whatever spine glows. And I said, why would her spine glow? He said, it doesn't matter. We'll figure that out later. It's just, it's cool. Trust me on it. And David has an instinct for certain things that will resonate with an audience, whether they make sense or not, but he just has an intuitive sort of dramatic instinct. So I listened to him, and sure enough, it became one of the most memorable things of the show. I still, to this day, have no idea why her spine glows or any of them when they have sex. To me, what it did, it immediately said, this is not your father's Battlestar yeah, Galactica. It definitely does that. And it was unlike anything you'd ever seen on any broadcast or cable network short of, you know, the soft porn stuff. Yeah, we were pushing the envelope on adult content, for sure. Well, and science fiction at that point, in my opinion, was a very sexless genre. What science fiction would do was it had no problem with cladding female characters in leather fetish outfits, Mm -hmm. right? That was okay. You could sexualize in science fiction, but you couldn't have actual sexuality in science fiction. You didn't really have people who had sex. You didn't really have people who had any kind of erotic interests and that that was a key component of their lives. Science fiction was like weirded out by that idea. We can fantasize about it, but we can't actually do it. So just having sex in the show became a whole thing. It was like, what? This isn't science fiction. I was like, really? They're people. Why can't we have that as part of their human experience? Or people and robots. Yes, or people and robots. Or, you know, name your poison. Hi, my name is Chris Porter from When Last I Left. The show you've been listening to is sponsored by Proudsource Water. Not only do they distribute their water in these stylish and recyclable aluminum bottles... But the water itself is sustainably sourced and naturally filtered. Proudsource Water believes in the ripple effect, that one person's actions can impact the world for the better. You do your part, and I do mine, and maybe we come out better than we started. So go to ProudsourceWater.com to learn more about the company, their vision, and their water. Leave the world better than you found it. Drink Proudsource Water. Why is science fiction so important? It opens up the box of what if in a much bigger and broader way. If you're a writer, any kind of storyteller, you're you're playing the game of what if. What if this happened to a character? What if you were in this time period? What if you were in this imaginary land? What if you were trapped in this marriage? Whatever. Science fiction allows you to broaden those definitions. Well, what if you were married to a robot? What if you lived in a society where the rules were very different? What if you were part of a truly alien culture? What if we could warp our way through space at fantastic speeds and meet strange new 
valence. You know, you just have much broader choices to play with. So that becomes fun and interesting and takes you out of your day-to-day reality. And you're not just telling stories about people that live down the street. You're not just telling stories about people you see on the news. You're telling these fantastical stories. It's the same reason why people were attracted to the Greek myths and the Norse myths, because they're like fantastical, larger-than-life, crazy ideas, and we get sucked into that style of storytelling. Then, you know, once you really get into science fiction, you can use it as a way to examine society from a different point of view, a lens on how people can behave to really explore the human condition in ways that are out of the box and challenge your assumptions. And it allows the audience to have a certain amount of distance from it. You know, at Galactica, we talked about the fact that dealing with Cylons and colonials, right, things that weren't real, allows you to talk about things like Iraq or Afghanistan or the war on terror or liberty versus security, things that were hot button issues in the United States at that moment. But we gave the audience a chance to sort of step out of that and still think about the same big ideas thematically and dramatically, but not get boxed into, well, what they said about the Republicans and what they said about Al-Qaeda and just retreat to sort of their tribal positions. It kind of gives them all a pass. We didn't invent that. You know, Gene did the same thing with Star Trek. The Klingons were the Soviets, but you didn't call them the Soviets, so you could play them in a different way. And you could challenge and you could ask different questions of the audience because they were distanced from it. Yeah, Gene Roddenberry, I mean, going back to creating the first interracial kiss on television. I mean, it was a way to mask from the censors what was really going on. That's right. You know, you were able to tell those social issue kinds of stories. And that's still true today. Also, doesn't it allow us to envision a future? I mean, I think about what we saw in the Jetsons. Mm-hmm. I have that big screen on the wall of my house yeah, that they had in the Jetsons. <laughs> we all had the flip phone yep. from Star Trek, the yep. original series. It allows you to imagine the future in fun ways, and it's always interesting to see which of those things come true and which don't. You know, we never got the jet cars, not yet. And we finally got the video phone, and then we all kind of decided it kind of sucks. Yeah. <laughs> like, none of us really like to use the video phone as such. Oh, we do we have to Skype on this call? Oh, man. Yeah. Then for years, it was like, well, I can't wait till we have video phones. That's going to change the world. Yeah, yeah, well, it sucked. While all of this is happening, what's also changing is, of course, television. And one of the things that I noticed in doing the research, you were at the forefront of the 2007 writer's strike. Can you talk about that? Uh, yeah, you know, we were all there. We were all on the front lines. David and I were out there with picket signs marching up and down. It was just something you had to do. And because I had a certain profile within the writer's community and within the guild, it isn't coming on me to sort of, you know, be somebody that's higher profile to wave the flag and show that we're all united and that the showrunners are in this as well. And it wasn't just me. I mean, Joss Whedon and I went together to dump cartons of pencils at the gates to Universal. And, you know, it was just part of being a team player. We talked a moment ago about how science fiction helps us envision the future. I mean, even social media, back in the 90s, before anybody was doing it, you were interacting with fans on AOL. Yeah, I had a folder on AOL (laughs) called Ask Ron Moore when I was at Star Trek, and they would write in questions in there, and I would try to go in and answer as many of them as I could at a time. Yeah, I did kind of see that that was something that was going to be useful in television. But in all honesty, I did it mostly out of the fact that I was a fan and this was a way to give back and a way to talk to fans Mm -hmm. from my office, you know, as opposed to going to a convention. And I could talk to many, many more fans by doing it. So I just kind of saw the practical applications of it early and then wanted to continue that. So I briefly had a blog when the blogging was a thing when we were on sci-fi. And then they asked me, would you do a podcast? And I remember saying, what the hell is a podcast? Because I never even heard the 
a word until they called me up and said that at Sci-Fi. And they said, well, it's, it's sort of like radio. For this, you, it's sort of like a commentary track on a DVD or a laser disc. And then it mm. made sense. Like, oh, I get what that is. I can do that. And then that became a thing that I was doing. I remember there was a podcasting convention somewhere in L.A. after that first season, and they invited me to be one of the speakers. And it was just such a new, weird thing of podcasting and what was it. And I remember walking around there, and there were all these, like, booths and things and the future of podcasting. And it was just like, wow, what is this thing that I have stepped into? And I didn't know if the bubble would burst and podcasting would go the way of AM radio or something. Mm -hmm. And who knew what it was going to be at that point? Yeah, but you foresaw the way that you could leverage social media. A little bit. I mean, again, it grew out of my knowledge of and affinity for fandom. So it was very sort of specific to our fan bases. I understood the power of the fans to drive the vitality of the show. Because at Next Generation, the first couple of years were pretty rocky creatively. Mm -hmm. But the dedication of the many, many fans out there drove the ratings high and kept the show on the air and kept it going to the point where then it found its footing and, and really became creatively mm -hmm. viable as well. So I knew all that. And it was about outreach to that fan community, I kind of felt was important at Trek and then later at Battlestar. And then here was a new tool that allowed me to talk to them and leverage that directly. So I, I don't know that I had a vision of, oh, this is going to apply to so many areas, you know, in television or politics or whatever. But I did know immediately that it was a good vehicle for me to use that to talk to our fans and keep that connection going and keep that relationship with our audience. Well, in large part, a lot of sci-fi people and early adoption goes hand in hand. Yeah. But when you talk about social media engagement, what do you feel like you learned from that? And how did it influence what you ended up doing creatively? Uh, I learned several things. I was Part of it, I learned not to argue with people on social media. That was like a lesson I learned at Trek. Because you would get, you know, that Ask Ron Moore file could get contentious and they would argue with me about things about the show and I would argue back. And then same thing at Galactica. It took a while for the lesson to sink in because I could get involved involved in very long, passionate arguments with fans about, mm -hmm. you know, really pedantic stuff about this or that or the Federation or what you really said or what this really meant. And at a certain point, I realized that it was exhausting emotionally. A lot of my passion and anger was going into this stupid argument with somebody. I don't even know who they are that's out there somewhere. And why am I dedicating hours of my time doing it? And then I just realized that I didn't have to do that. I could mm -hmm. still talk to them. And I could let that stuff kind of roll off my back at a certain point and not get so caught up in it. That was like the biggest lesson. Then the second lesson was it's still a lot of work and it's a lot of writing. Mm -hmm. And that's why I started to pull back from it. Because even without the anger of it, even without the argument of it, it was still chewing up a lot of time and it was making me tired creatively because it's still writing. You know, so much of my job is writing on the page, but a lot of it is writing emails, writing responses to notes, all this writing that's involved. And here's another thing that's a me tapping at the keyboard, creating and writing, and it was just burning me out at a certain point. And I mm. just, I'd rather give up that than the other. No, that's understandable. <laughs> Let's talk about what makes Ron Moore's stories different, because I know one of the things, it's almost an inside joke, that you're not averse to killing off characters. I remember <laughs> in the first, I think it was yeah. the first episode of Star Trek Enterprise, they actually had a character named after you, Farmer, yes, Farmer Moore, Moore yeah. and he was killed off right quickly. at the top by one of the Klingons. Very quickly. But what is it that you feel makes your writing different? 
I don't know. You know, it's hard to break down your own process on a certain level. I didn't really take formal writing courses per se, and then I shied away from doing it at all because then I sort of had the philosophy of, well, I've got a process and I don't even know how it works to begin with, so I don't want to fuck it up by learning something that'll then stick in my head. So I don't really know how I do what I do, to be honest. I just kind of do it. Mm -hmm. What I do enjoy is I know that I like being inside the characters, like in the writer's room, when we're breaking stories and talking about stories, I enjoy sort of just speaking in their voice. I'll just start talking like the character, you know, and like I'm in the scene and pretending that I'm in the scene. There's a certain play acting involved with that. And when I'm writing on the page, it's similar. Sometimes I speak out loud. I'll say the lines as I'm writing them or I'll, I'll go back and read them out loud and pretend to be the characters. And I guess for me, the things that I'm always looking for are surprises to the audience, how I reveal something to the audience, how I open something to the audience. I'm always looking for some sort of authenticity of human interaction. I want the characters to feel as real as I can, and then I want the world that they inhabit to feel as real as I can. And I guess those are the things I'm always on about in the writer's room or in production and in my own work is trying to make it feel true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, true is a better word than real because it's not real. None of the things we do is actually real, but you can try to find truth in it. You can try to find something that is true, a character who really truly believes that or is misguided in a way. And there's a authenticity to that. I'm always looking for that. I'm always looking for the truth in the scene and the truth in the characters and then in the story. Do you ever feel like you've written yourself into a corner? All the time. And how do, you, how do you get out of that? Usually you just plow forward. I mean, usually I'm on some kind of deadline and I don't have the luxury to sort of oh, I've got writer's block and I can't figure it out and, you know, I'll just muse on it for weeks at end. I usually have to produce something and I just force myself to write the next word and the next word and the next word and then somehow I'll get out of the jam. But a lot of times, you know, I'll realize, yeah, this story doesn't work. I've gotten to a place midway through here where there's a flaw and the flaw is back 20 pages and I'll just go back 20 pages and do something different and see where that takes me and discard everything I've just done. And I do that almost every script. I'm usually always writing and as I'm writing the script, I'm getting a better idea for the first scene and I'm getting a better idea for 10 pages ago and I'll go back and keep reworking it. And as a result, if you look at my stuff, in my opinion, my first acts are usually better than my third acts because I've rewritten the first act like a dozen times and I've only rewritten the third act like once or twice. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of the downfall of that. You also get to benefit from being the showrunner. Yes. I want to know what the best part of that is, but what's the worst? Uh, yeah, the worst part of being a showrunner... It's when it doesn't work. You do a pilot or you do a series that gets canceled and you realize that you've led everyone down this path that you really believed in and it didn't work. You know, mm. it failed. The network didn't pick it up or the ratings weren't good enough. And you realize you've led people off a cliff and that's terrible and that's a bad feeling. And that's the, the, the fear of that drives you, you know, in the rest of your projects. You don't want to feel like that again. You don't want to have taken all these people down this, this wrong road. So that's probably the worst of it. I mean, the rest of it, the stress of it, the various sort of arguments you get locked in with various people, that just kind of goes with the territory and it eats at you, but it's not as bad as failure. Failure is like the worst of it. And the best of it is just, there's a lot of good things about the job. It's like the best job in the world as far as I'm concerned. Running a television show is an amazing, amazing thing. From being in the writer's room and leading a group of writers and coming up with solutions to problems you thought were insolvable at the beginning of the day and having the fun and the interactivity of that and the back and forth with writers and laughing and crying together and then figuring it out is an amazing euphoric process. Seeing the dailies for the first time of the things that you created 
did, you know, is amazing because you spent all this time, not just on the page, but with the art department and costume and visual effects and casting the actors and all that. And suddenly there they are saying, you know, and you've created the show, the show exists, and then cutting it and doing the music and then finally having people watch it. There's a tremendous amount of joy that goes with the job. Many times I'll have a moment and feel like this is the best part of show running. You know, when we had the premiere for Mankind, we're in Westwood and got to stand on a stage and introduce the show to a crowd for the first time. It's like a high point. I'm going, this is the best part of running a show is this moment. Sometimes it is. And sometimes sitting in the editing room and having the satisfaction of seeing a really good cut and knowing, oh my God, look at this thing that we've created together. That is like a high point too. And you go, this is the best part of the job. So there's a lot of best parts of the job in my opinion. Talk to us about For All Mankind. Now it's out on Apple TV+. Plus. Oh, well, you know, the concept of the show is what if the Russians had beat the Americans to the moon in 1969, and how would that have changed the world? And in our telling of events, it changes the world in small and in profound ways. When the Americans lose the race to the moon, it angers the country. There's a huge backlash. People want to know how this happened, and then they are determined to sort of compete. You know, we thought we were going to win the moon race. The Russians had won every other prize. First man in the space, first woman in space, first duo in space. And we were trying to catch up. And then this was going to be our big crowning achievement. And then they took it away at the last minute. Oh my God, those Russians. And even Nixon is like, yeah, we got to go get them. And so they pull out of Vietnam early. They dedicate a lot more resources to the space program and history changes from that point. And the show, it's it's really this epic story. It's multi-generational in the way we're going to be telling the story. And the idea is you see as the space program expands and the race with the Soviet Union continues, and the infusion of cash and research into aerospace technology on Earth brings tangible change. We start to see cultural change. Women come into the program much earlier. And it puts humanity and the United States on a path towards a better future. I mean, the idea is history changes, but it changes in a good way. We start making progress in areas that took a longer period of time. There are genuine advances in science and technology. We move out into space in a positive way, and eventually it becomes like a better humanity. So it's a very sort of optimistic idea idea of how the world would change and, and why. And you have a seven-year arc on this, I understand? We broke, you know, originally the writers and I sat down and we broke like a big seven-year story because it, it kind of felt important to do that on this project, unlike, say, Galactica, where I was very, we're not going to think too far ahead. Let's just talk about where we are today and where we are this season and not worry about what the end game is. We'll figure that out later. Here, it felt different because of the structure of what we were trying to accomplish. We wanted to map out how the space program was going to affect the world, and we wanted to have time to tell that story. So by its nature, that's a multi-generational story. Okay, how much are you going to tell in season one? Where does it take you? What are you setting up for season two? It felt like we had to talk about all seven years at the beginning. Now, you know, plans change and already there's things that we've made changes in that will domino through that structure. But at least we had a general structure to hang our hat on that told us where we were going. Your ability to do that, it strikes me that you've worked in broadcast television, You've worked into the migration of programming into just an explosion of content on the cable networks and now into streaming media. And I don't even know that this would have been possible 
when you started? No, it's a very different industry than when I started. Because when I started, it was literally the three broadcast networks plus Fox, the junior member at those days. Everybody was like, well, Fox isn't a real network, but they were. And cable was just starting to sort of happen as a place to do original content. And then Star Trek was in first-run syndication, which is a market that doesn't even really exist anymore. So it was a very different landscape. And because there were only those very few outlets, the market tended to buy things that were homogenous. There was a sameness to it because everyone was trying to get the broadest, biggest audience as possible. And so you had to kind of water things down to kind of appeal to the great middle about almost any program. And riskier programs would come and go, and they would kind of come on the air for a little while and then burn out and people didn't watch it. They weren't given the chance to really find a following. Cut to where we are today. Now there is such a broad, huge marketplace to sell scripted programming in that you can find a buyer for almost any idea, really. Now they may not buy it and it may not work, but the opportunity is there. You can find someone who's willing to at least hear the idea and someone who might at least consider whatever your crazy, whacked out notion of television is. Some buyer out there will at least have that conversation with you. And there's a chance they might even buy it. And that's a very different landscape when it was just there were so few buyers and and you really had a difficult time doing anything that was pretty out of the mainstream. We were growing up at a time when we described the golden age of television as Sid Caesar in your show of shows. Yeah, yeah. Would you agree that this really is the golden age now? It's the next one. I mean, there's been a lot of them. You know, there was the Sid Caesar golden age of television, and then it felt like there was another renaissance in the 80s, you know, when shows like Hill Street Blues and NYPD Blue came along, and that changed the landscape again. And then into the 90s and early 2000s, 2000s with things like The Sopranos and Sex and the City, and there was a different, like, oh my God, a new golden age has come, and then Mad Men and Battlestar, and there was a whole ferment of things in the early 2000s, and now, yet again, there's a giant change in television, and we live through yet another golden age of television. To me, what's really interesting this time around is that when we were growing up, a 25-inch 4.3 format television was big. It was a big deal, yeah. It was a real big deal, and boy, when they went to 27, we had to get out that 27 inch too. Oh, yeah. And now a 55 inch is considered in many homes to be a small TV. And they're not that expensive. You right. know, I mean, you're talking hundreds of dollars instead of thousands so as of dollars. A, as a showrunner, as a producer and working with directors, doesn't that allow you to now be more cinematic in how you frame shots and deal with content? Certainly the coming of the letterbox did. That was the biggest change that I could say directly affected me in storytelling. Because once we went from 4x3 to 16x9, that definitely brought a whole different aesthetic in terms of cinema and visual storytelling and television that did not exist before then. Now you were totally framing for a different style, and that kind of brought more of a cinematic sensibility to the visual style of storytelling. In terms of the television size itself, to be honest, I don't know that I've thought a lot about that ever. I've always sort of been annoyed that people watch shows on their phones. I discourage you from doing that. I think there should be a law. Um... (laughs) I think, you know, you want a bigger screen than that. Pads are okay if you have to, laptops, but get a monitor and hang it on your freaking wall. I always just kind of assume that people are not watching it on as good a TV as I am when I'm in the editing bay. We probably have a 55, 60 inch TV that we look at, and that's a beautiful picture, and there's an even bigger projector when we watch sound playback. It's huge. It's like you're in a movie theater. But my brain is always kind of thinking a lot of people are not seeing it on this clarity and detail and on this size. So I do kind of scale it down in my head that a lot of people are going to watch this on a much smaller screen and that matters in terms of visual storytelling. Can they see that thing 
something in the background that is an important story point? Were they able to read that card? Did they get the look between those two characters in this two shot? Maybe we should go to the single so that the story point lands. So it affects me in that sense. As far as all mankind is concerned, is this writing you into retirement or are you looking beyond that? You know, I'm at that stage in my life where retirement is a word that does come up periodically, but I'm not ready to and I don't know what it'll mean for me or when it'll be. And I prematurely thought I was retiring from TV after Battlestar was over. I was like, I'm not doing TV anymore. I can't top this. I'm just going to do feature films. And then within a year, I was like, I'm doing TV again. So you never say never. And I really don't know what my uh, off ramp is from the business. You're already into season two We're into season on the production two. Yeah. side. But I would imagine with five more seasons of For All Mankind, that's going to keep you busy for a while. It'll keep me busy. You know, I will definitely develop other shows and do other shows. I probably won't day-to-day show run For All Mankind to the end. You know, Battlestar is probably the last show that I'll ever do that on. Even on Outlander, I stepped away after a couple of seasons and, and delegated and handoff. You try to bring people inside the organization that, A, you want to give opportunity and you want to let them grow and bring their vision to things. And also, in all honesty, my mind starts wandering and thinking about something else and doing another season of a show is not as challenging as doing a new show for the first time. And so I'm sure that at some point I'll get interested in developing something else and want to hand over the reins. It's such a personal show to me that I can't imagine a situation where I just completely walk away. Mm -hmm. I think I'll always be involved and always want to know what's going on and want to dive into the writer's room periodically and sit in editorial. So I don't think I'll ever completely walk away the show, but uh, I could definitely see handing off a lot of the day-to-day responsibilities. Well, I know you must be insanely busy, but do you ever take time and reflect back on that five-year-old that you were looking up at the moon? All the time. I'm very connected to my childhood in that sense. In my memories of what I thought about the space program, what I thought about Star Trek, dreams and fantasies and television shows and movies and that whole aspect of my life growing up, I think about a lot, I reflect on a lot, I find resonance in it a lot. Now we're in this world where most every show is available in some fashion, and you start digging through your memory of, oh yeah, there was that show, or there was that movie, where is that, and can I go find it? Ron Moore, thank you so much for joining us for Hollywood Unscripted. Oh, absolutely, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hollywood Unscripted is created by Kurt Co Media and presented in cooperation with the Malibu Film Society. This episode was hosted by Scott Talal, with guest Ron Moore, produced and edited by Jenny Curtis, sound engineering by Michael Kennedy, recorded at Kurt Co Media's Malibu Podcast Studios. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast for more conversations with top industry professionals discussing the movies you love. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. Mm-hmm.